there is a bankruptcy of the prosperity gospel that has so infected many of our churches across the wider church around the world. That means when we open Philippians 4 and hear the Bible start to speak about giving, we can get a little bit antsy, angst, reaction. Perhaps you feel it ripple through you or you cringe a little bit or you you wince or whatever it is, something's happened in our society when it comes to money and so much in our churches that when the Bible speaks about money, remember, how does God speak? In the Bible, when the Bible speaks about money, God speaks about money, we still just don't want to really go there. I'm a pastor, it's what I... It's my vocation, it's my calling, and I serve people as a pastor, as one of the elders of reforming. And as the elders of reforming, we can tell you, we care for people in much acute pain or circumstances, and people generally, men, I I meet with a lot of men, are happy to talk about all sorts of things, struggles in all sorts of areas, but money is the one that's just hands off, isn't it? Just don't talk about that one. Why? I think because it's too close to the heart. It's perhaps closer to the heart than all the other things. We can talk about sexuality or addictions and all sorts of struggles. Just don't talk about money. So friends, I know the times I live in. I talk with lots of people during the week from our church and other churches. I have coffee with pastors from other churches during the week, regularly. And I know that the prosperity gospel, which is not a gospel, by the way, but that's, let's just call it that for the sake of understanding what we're talking about, that has led to the topic of money in church being misused. So with that as our context, let's read Philippians 4. Philippians 4, I'm going to read actually from verse 10, it was last week's passage, because that's context for understanding money today. It's context for understanding the topic of our sermon, which is on joyful generosity. Philippians 4 verse 10, Paul writes, as he finishes this letter to the church, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians, you yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit 
that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering. A sacrifice. Acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his glory, his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I know the times I live in, friends. The topic of money in church has led to much misuse. You've probably seen this and you're probably wounded by it. We've had people come to our church, new to our church, from other contexts, and usually people that are new to our church, maybe this has been your experience, come to Reforming Church and go, wow, this church is wonderful. And I always get a little bit nervous. And I say, well, just give us some time. Get to know us. <laughs> We're not perfect. <laughs> I am not perfect. I'm not wonderful. Let me tell you someone who is. His name is Jesus Christ, to be sure. But I'm not wonderful. And our church has got problems because... At the very least, Russ is the pastor. But sometimes people come to our church and they say, I love how you don't talk about money or I love you don't, you're, not, you're not in a kind of that prosperity gospel, which is true and, and we find it so distasteful. But the prosperity gospel also has other names and it, it kind of cloaks and hides and moves in other ways in our society and even amongst our churches. It could be the health gospel. You just pray and you will be healed. And if you're not healed, you didn't have enough faith. I was in the hospital room of one of our members years ago. And you probably know who this is because we're not old as a church. And I got a phone call. I went to the waiting room. It was someone I didn't know, but my wife Amy knew this person. And this person was a pastor and said, the reason this is happening is because you and your church and the family don't have enough faith. Now, if I had received that call, I would have been furious for the sake of the family and the person and the dear sister who died half an hour later in that room. That is the health gospel. Which has no room, by the way, for the New Testament vision of actually what life is like for Christians, which includes suffering, which includes sorrow, which includes trials of various kinds. And by the way, how do we know that? Because it includes the cross. We don't worship a God who comes in and says, here's the couch I'm going to sit on. We worship the God who comes into the world and says, here's the cross I'm going to die on. But the health gospel has so invaded and infected our churches that Christians now assume I become a Christian, my life is going to be comfortable. I seek comfort. And if I'm not comfortable, God doesn't love me. And I spend my time preaching to people who feel it. I feel it too. I feel suffering. I've had suffering. If you've been around us for the last couple of years, you know this. But I know also that God loves me, even as I suffer. Perhaps you've seen the prosperity gospel in the happiness gospel. Now, the scriptures speak of us being happy. 
being content. Because as your pastor, one of your elders, I'm conscious that contentedness brings up all sorts of struggles with people. And so I'm writing a series of articles at the moment, the latest one. I think the snippets in the service sheet, actually. I've written one that I wrote years ago when I was, I was single and particularly thinking through theologically what it means to be gifted with singleness. And so I wrote The Blessing of Singleness. It's on our website. Go and read it. What it means to be content in singleness. There'll be more coming. What it means to be content in when marriage is hard or content in workplaces that are difficult. How can we be content? Because the message of the world is, you're not happy, you need to leave. You're not happy, you need to exit. You're not happy because you need to seek happiness. But here's the problem with seeking happiness, friends. It's a phantom. If you seek the happiness, you'll never get it. But if you seek Christ, that is where you can have joy and happiness, even in hard times, even in sorrow. But the prosperity gospel, the happiness gospel says, no, 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 you become a Christian, you'll always be happy. And so then you have whole churches where you enter the doors and everyone is just blissfully happy, which means for people like me who sometimes are not, do I belong here? Can I fit in because I don't meet the standard? There's also the success gospel. I live in pastor land. You might say, what's pastor land like? Before I was a pastor, I used to think pastor land was like the place where you open the gates and everyone's just constantly happy and content and satisfied. As I get to know pastors, it's not true. When I was in agriculture, briefly, you may not know or not, but I grew up on a farm. It's a running joke around here. I used to think I had to go to conferences right for farmers. Conferences of farmers look like this. Bunch of farmers in the room. Yes, there's seminars, but what do farmers do over the morning tea? What do we, what do we talk about? What do we ask each other? How many acres you got? What you running up there? Constantly comparing, right? And I used to think, you know what? I'm so looking forward to being a minister of the gospel because we'll never compare like that. (laughs) What do pastors do when they go to conferences? What do they ask? What do they say? Oh, how many people you got? It's ridiculous and crazy and sometimes a little bit, I can't stomach it. We talk in numbers and success rather than names and people. The success gospel is just prosperity gospel for pastors. It's the kingdom building gospel. You may have heard of it. There's nothing wrong with kingdom building, but what happens is tempting for churches is we do this. We say, we're going to build the kingdom, but what that becomes code for is build the pastor's ego and empire in his name for what I'm going to do. And I'm going to have my brand, and I'm going to plant this church over here. It's got exactly the same branding, exact same everything, and and it's all attributed to my name, and we're going to be across the country, and we're going to do all these things, wonderful things. Just watch out for a pastor's ego wrapped up in that. Watch out for the pastor who has to be broadcast into the other churches, who has to be in control, who has to be the brand and everything is about him. When, when, when a pastor in America failed catechismically, Mark Driscoll said, he said, you don't understand Mars Hill, the brand is me. Now that's a public thing on public records, on a podcast, and many of you will listen to it. But that's the problem when pastors become prosperity gospel, even if you want to call yourself reformed and evangelical, if you become prosperity, you make it about me. But this isn't my church, it's Christ's church. It belongs to him. The prosperity gospel invades and infects all sorts of things in our hearts. And ultimately, what's it about? Me. 
And how do we convince people to be generous? Make it about you having more to, more health, more success, more something. Philippians 4 speaks in the face of that. The gospel is never about prosperity for its preachers and churches. And it's always about partnership from the beginning. Not prosperity, but partnership. That's the word Paul uses a few times in Philippians. And it's a partnership for a joyful community that has as a heartbeat a joyful generosity. This is the last in our series in Philippians, as I said. Um, in the next few weeks, uh, the Board of Management, you know, we've got our annual congregational meeting and we're going to be looking at um, our budget. And sometimes we see budgets as just figures and number crunching. It's not. A budget, a church budget, and I want to say your budget, is a deeply spiritual thing. We'll see why in a moment. But going up to the congregational meeting, we're going to do a quick, short series in our plans and prayers. When you're talking about what are our plans and prayers as a congregation, how we want your voice in that, and we're going to be talking about what it means to be generous with our time, and our talents, and our treasure. They're the three things we take as vows as members here, that I'm going to give of my time and my talents and treasure. But as we do that, I am super aware that talking about time, talents, and especially the last one, treasure in church, gets people angsty, uncomfortable. But we need to hear it, and Jesus says we need to hear it because it's in his word. But here's what we need to hear, friends. We never talk about money in a church, Paul doesn't in Philippians 4, outside of the context of Christ. And we see that the way to understand even giving or generosity has to come in the context of being content in Christ. Because here's the first point. Contentedness in Christ leads to being content to share. Verse 14. You look at verse 14, Paul says, Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. It was kind of you to share. See, if you learn, this is what we saw last week, if you learn Christ, you learn contentedness, you learn that secret, Paul then says, you'll actually learn contentedness, which means you'll naturally want to share out of your contentedness in Christ. But discontent people don't share. So it's a, a contentedness in Christ leads to a sharing. It leads to a partnership. Paul uses the same language he uses at the start of Philippians. This is where we started. It's kind of like bookends of this letter. At the start of Philippians, he said this, chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Then you go back to chapter 4, notice the same language is used. Verse 15, you Philippians know yourselves. In the beginning of the gospel, 
when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Partnership in the gospel. Start of Philippians, end of the gospel. Of, sorry, end of Philippians. And Paul is saying, his point is this, you folks have been partners. And he says, I thank God for that. Reforming church. We can be thankful that we are partners in the gospel. This is who we are. It's not just attending church, it's partners in church. I know some churches have changed the name membership to partnership for their church. Now we haven't because the Bible speaks about being members of one another in Romans. But notice this for Paul, it's a partnership. Now your Bible might have a footnote for the word share in verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. The Bible, you might have a footnote or it might say this, it could be translated as fellowship in my trouble. It was kind of you to fellowship in my trouble, to to be friends with me in this, to fellowship together. This language is sharing and fellowship is throughout Philippians. Philippians 1, 7, that you are partakers with me of this grace. We need to see this. Sharing, giving, is not just giving and then seeing it and saying goodbye, I don't know what happens with that money. It's giving and sharing for the sake of gospel ministry. And this sharing and giving is not just good for the receiver, it's also good for the giver. It's good for all, for the whole body, for the whole fellowship. It's kind of like what communism wants but never gets. You might think, whoa, communism, where'd that come from? I'll tell you why. I've got friends who like a little bit of socialism or perhaps they like communism. It doesn't take very much to read on communism as a philosophy or read it historically to see communism, ironically enough, ends in the very opposite of what it wants or seeks to achieve. Have you noticed this? So communism's over here, right? Uh, That's your left. Let's do that. Communism's here. Fascism's over here. Fascism, communists go, oh, we don't like fascism, dictators, dictators. We don't like dictators. We like to be all equal, so we're going to be communists. What happens with communism every single time? What do you get at the top? Dictators. It always ends in a dictatorship. Because of sin and human pride. Now, what is communism's ideal? Communism is, ideally, we're going to share everything. We'll share everything. A communal effort, hence the word communism. But in the end, communism is actually just pretending to share everything. Where the dictator and the delegated yes-men get all the spoils. Here's where the gospel is completely different. Gospel partnership shares, it fellowships for the sake of everyone and everyone sharing in the spoils of King Jesus. And look at the contrast of King Jesus and the communistic dictator. King Jesus doesn't rule his people with an iron fist. He doesn't say, you come, he doesn't come along and and, and, and scold you and, and rule you with an iron fist, but with a shepherd's hands. Hands that willingly and sacrificially were nailed to a cross for the sinful unsharing of his people. Our King who is Christ dies in the place of selfish people. 
He shared his life, he fellowship with us in the word made flesh, and then he died in the flesh to free us from sin and death. And so Paul says, you Philippians know, you know this, I thank God for this, because you get Jesus. The gospel has changed them. Paul even then subtly compares the Philippians to the Corinthians. We read that cross-reference passage. We always have a cross-reference passage, usually Old Testament, that shows and, and lights up the New Testament, how it's all one God's coherent word. Did you notice this? In 2 Corinthians, what does Paul do in 2 Corinthians 8? He writes to the church at Corinth and he says in 2 Corinthians 8 this. He says, um, hey, Corinthians, look, I know you're in a big church, right? So the Corinthian church is kind of like the mega church of the region. You're the big church, you've got all the gifts, all the people. Hey, you've got a huge pastoral team, big staff team. You've got all the resources in the world, right? Here's what's interesting, Corinthians. You're a big, wealthy church. Mega church, planting churches everywhere, brand name going out. You've got some problems, but you're a big church. It's the Philippian church, the small church, in poverty, give much. And you guys, I just notice you don't give that much. Now, he's not scolding them, he's just pointing it out. So when he says the Philippians, he says this. You notice as we saw this. He says in verse 15, You Philippians yourselves know this. In the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. That's why Paul writes the Corinthians, which we use in, the, in our season at the moment every week. Hey, Corinthians, know this. He who was rich in every way gave himself up so that you could be rich spiritually in every way. Corinthians, do you get it? It's possible to have little and give out of your little and be generous. It's also possible, therefore, to have much and give out of much. It won't ruin you. In fact, Paul's point is, second point, it'll grow you. Everyone wants to grow as a person these days, don't they? Whether you want to grow by being an American ninja warrior, learn Krav Maga yourself, get fit, do park runs, read more books or just blogs, Perhaps you want to grow by learning a new language or learning how to cook a special meal. Paul's point is, if you want to grow as a human being, truly grow, grow like the best human being who's ever walked this planet. Grow like Jesus. And how do you grow like Jesus? If you look at Jesus' character, who he is and how he gives himself up on the cross, grow in your generosity. You actually grow as you grow in generosity. You grow as a human you're meant to grow in. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, generous in their stewardship. Sin comes in, what do they do? They flee from one another and they flee from God. They become selfish and turn in on themselves. That's what sin does to us and we don't grow. But to grow is to grow in your generosity with your time and your talents and your treasure towards others. Because you grow like Jesus. Paul says this in verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift. Friends, this is not about the gift. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit 
that increases to your credit. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Your Bible might have another footnote. It might say, I seek the profit that accrues to your account. I seek for your good, your growth, is what Paul's saying. Now, let's be clear on this. Paul is not saying, if you give more, you will get more. That's prosperity gospel. He's not saying that. He's saying this. If you give more, you'll grow more like Jesus. If you grow in generosity, you will grow more like Jesus. Jesus himself said those words which we probably remember. Where your treasure is, you can finish the sentence. Where your heart is also. You want to know how your heart is? A diagnosis of your heart. What do you do with your money? A diagnosis of your heart. Where is your treasure? And Paul has a prayer in Philippians 1 that he's praying for the Philippian church and we pray for us. Philippians 1 verse 9, he says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Do you see this? Paul is not a prosperity preacher asking for more money. He's asking the Lord for them to grow more like Jesus. And this is a way this happens. What is a church budget for? I wonder if you thought about this. What is the church budget for? What is your household budget for? It's budget season this time of year change in the financial year what's the budget for at annual congregational meeting we're going to do philippians 110 you see it we're going to approve what is excellent we're going to approve and adopt a budget but what is the budget for aside from the number crunching what's it for here's what it is a budget reveals what we believe is important. If you look at your budget for your household, it will show, if we put it on the screen, which we won't, but we put the church budget on the screen, it'll be in a booklet, it shows us what we think is important. It shows us what we value. Jamie Dunlop wrote a book, uh, Budgeting for a Healthy Church. And he says this, a good budget will tell a story about Jesus. And his promises being worth more than anything in this world could offer. Paul says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. You see, a church that has a big budget for gospel ministry has a big heart for the gospel. For where your treasure is, there is where your heart is. I once heard a missionary to Indigenous Australians. So he's a missionary to First Nation peoples in Australia. And I don't remember any of his presentation except one thing he said, and I was 25 years old, and he said this. How do you know what your priorities are? As a 25-year-old, I'm thinking, yeah, that's, that's a good question. How do you know what your priorities are? And here's the answer, he said. It's what you spend your money on. 
The budget shows what we care about enough that we would share in. And this pleases God. Paul writes, it smells good. Thirdly, it smells good, the smell of pleasing God. Look at verse 18. Paul says, look, I'm well supplied. It's not about me. It's about you and you growing more like Jesus. But here's what happens when we give generously. Paul uses this language. It's fascinating language. And often we miss it because we think, oh, we're New Testament Christians and this is Old Testament. It's actually not. It's New Testament and Old Testament. It goes here, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Do you see this? Our giving for the gospel could come at a cost to us. It is a sacrifice, isn't it? But it's a fragrant offering on the fire that pleases God and God smells it. Does that seem weird to you? It's the language of the Old Testament. So much so I did some digging and it's fascinating. This language is used at least 16 times in Leviticus. It's used throughout the Old Testament. For example, in Exodus, we read, And they burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. What's this all about? It's not actually about the smell so much. It's what the smell represents. In a sacrificial offering, the smell represents to God, sin has been atoned for. There has been a substitute, a sacrifice, and sin is atoned for. And then, surprise, surprise, Christians, the language is picked up in the New Testament. And we read in Ephesians 5 verse 2, Walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ is that fragrant offering. So for us, what does that mean for our gospel giving? It means when we are content in Christ to share... When we grow more like Jesus as we share, it's like the smell of onions on the barbecue. It smells good. The joyful generosity of a joyful community has a smell, a fragrance, offering, and it pleases God. And friends... As we grow this way, we grow with confidence that God will supply every need. Here's what can happen about money in church. Um, I've been serving in churches for about 25 years now, like this. And here's what happens with money in church, is churches don't want to talk about money. So the other extreme is we don't do prosperity gospel, but we do Presbyterian, right? And what that means is is we just don't talk about it because we know it makes people uncomfortable. We don't talk about it at all, talk about it at all. Until the board of management meets, we have here we have elders. The elders don't touch any financial handling. We have a separate group for that. So there's the elders, shepherd the flock. Board of management, manage facilities and finances. Board of management have monthly meetings. We don't talk about money until there's a monthly meeting. And the board of management says, interestingly enough, um, we're going backwards. And so what churches do is they go, and they go, who's going to say something? Well, the pastor needs to say something. So they put up a graph, perhaps in the service sheet or on the screen, and go, um, you know, you know, it's going to be tight, a bit hard, uh, just, just to, you know, if you haven't started giving, or could you perhaps think about it? We do that, and we feel very uncomfortable. point is this, we don't talk about it until it's an emergency. And then sometimes the giving increases, and oh, let's just not talk about it again for a while. 
That is the wrong approach to money as well. Treating money like it's an emergency thing, it's a number crunching on a budget only, rather than actually seeing it's a deeply spiritual thing to us to consider. It's actually about where we are with Jesus. It's actually about believing God will supply every need. Now what does this mean, by the way, in verse 19, my God will supply every need? There's a link in verse 16. What do we need? So you have a look at verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 16. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. What is our primary, ultimate need? What is the God supplying our need of? It's our need of Christ himself. Why do we fund gospel ministry? Why do we give money to free people up for the time to meet with people in coffee shops on Saturday nights who are not yet believers, to read the Bible with them, to meet with people and pastor them and shepherd them through life of the gospel, to preach the gospel, to teach the gospel, to make little disciples. Why do we give money to that? So that people have their ultimate need met in having Jesus. You can give to lots of charities and that's a good thing. We need charities. We give, I give to charities. But ultimately, what do people ultimately need is Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, remember this, as you give, God will supply your need in Christ. All the riches of God in the universe are in Christ Jesus. What's the one thing that ultimately opens our wallets? It's not our hands, it's our hearts. Money is not to be avoided in church. It's deeply connected to the gospel. It's about a joyful generosity that's deeply rooted in Jesus. We're a small church. I know, like, I don't know, what do you call small, large, medium? Who knows? I don't know. I don't care much about it, but I just know that our feeling, our vibe is we're a small church compared to some other churches around. And what that means is this, friends. Pastorally, as I talk with people, people often feel small. We have little money. We have little money as a church and so forth. I understand that. But Paul's point at the Philippians is the same point, isn't it? You were a small church, you didn't have much, but you can still give generously and grow like Jesus. Even in our small, we can give. The widow's might. And Paul says it's not even about the might or the gift or the number, it's about the heart. And about you seeing Jesus' generosity towards us in the gospel. It's about us being content in Christ. Here's where we're going to finish. I want you to imagine for a moment. Imagine we believed that Jesus is that generous towards us. Just imagine we believe that. Imagine we believe that he was rich beyond compare but he became poor for our sake. Imagine we believe that. I hope you're imagining it because the next thing you need to imagine is this. Imagine we believed God will supply our every need in Christ Jesus. Imagine we believe that. 
And then finally, imagine that smell. It's got an aroma about it, a generous, a joyful community. We see on the screen, it's got an aroma about it, it's got a feel, a vibe. It doesn't have to be innately smiling all the time and high-fiving everyone, but it can be joy and sorrow, it can be contentedness in Christ. And then lastly, imagine verse 20. Imagine verse 20. How much to God our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray and say amen. Our God and Father, we're praying now. We're asking that you would grow us in that gospel fruit of generosity for your glory. But Father, we're not asking that we do that out of guilt. For guilt is bad for us. It has been dealt with by Jesus and it is something that we wish to avoid knowing that Jesus has finished it at the cross. So we're not asking that we would guilt one another in this. But that we would encourage one another in the grace of the gospel that we would grow in the gospel fruit of generosity with our time, our talents, our treasure, because we behold your benevolence to us in Jesus. That we would look into the kindness of Christ and seeing him would be joyfully generous. And we pray that before we even give, we will see how much we have received in Christ. Help us to believe that. In Jesus' name, amen.